You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Red lights on. Can only mean one thing. It's the afternoon here at 3RRRFM. Oh, that's a bit loud. Sorry about that. <laughs> you, were, uh, you were just doing some James Brown moves with your microphone stand there, too. <laughs> I was just excited to get on. You know, <laughs> going, hey, uh, Actually, I was thinking Daryl Braithwaite, so you've promoted me a bit. Yeah, just, just a little bit. 12.03 here on 3RRFM. You are listening to the Afternoon Food Show. It's the beginning of the afternoon of great radio that you mm. want to miss or leave, and we are so delighted that you are here. My name is Cam Smith. My name is Matt Stebbin. It is the program, and big thanks to Shane and team from Einstein and Go-Go there having vigorous debates in the green room. Shane's got his arms folded. What does that mean? I don't know. There's no off switch to those guys. No. The brains just keep on braining, oh, the brains even without the microphones in front of them. Keep on going. So we move from the brain. We're going into the stomach. Yep. Um, well, we like to think that we have, a, you know, little quick diversions every now and then to the prefrontal cortex. Yes. Hey. Eh? Yes. We can do that. And um, and we hope that um, we do that for you this hour. Matt, it's lovely to see you here. Likewise. Um, I wanted to say that uh, on today's show, we preview a couple of events from Melbourne Fringe Festival. Yes, coming up in the next couple of weeks. Hooray, hooray. Um, uh, we've got uh, Raylene Isbesta, who uh, her alter ego, mm. she becomes Nigella. Mm. And uh, she's doing a show called Nigella Love Bites. And we have uh, with her, next to her, indeed, in the green room, mm. enjoying some caffeinated uh, fun times, we have Rochelle Fong. And um, she's doing Coburg Carnival. Nom, nom, nom. Mm. Stay tuned. Yes. <laughs> All will be explained. <laughs> um, and, and then looking... As we sometimes do in the rear vision mirror mm. uh, of Melbourne, as we look ahead and look at all the buildings that uh, are emerging. That keep on springing up. Springing up. Yeah. Uh, indeed. And But we have a great opportunity with the digging of the Melbourne Metro Tunnel to sift through the past quite literally. Mm. And uh, we'll be speaking to Paul, who's the senior project manager for the archaeology site on La Trobe Street. Yep. And uh, it's amazing. And you were saying we won't preempt the full interview, but one figure that uh, made uh, my eyebrows sort of poke up was you were saying so in the ex- both of them came up. They did. Yes, in the excavation for the Melbourne Metro so far, yes. six hundred thousand artifacts have been uncovered. Oh, and they just keep finding them because, uh, like, it was just a couple of weeks before. It's taken a few weeks to get this interview organised. Mm. And when we first started talking, it was half a million, which is just it's still in itself an amazing amount. 600,000. And it tells us a little bit about uh, uh, who we are and who we were. The history of Melbourne layer upon layer. Layer upon layer. Layer upon layer. Layer upon layer. Although uh, some of the layers um, don't keep as well as others. Ah. But we're, anyway, we're preempting yeah. the yeah. So, that was, so that's what we're doing. We're going to have a little look into that. And then... Yes... <clears throat> we have an opportunity to have a chat to Tracy Lister. Mm. Uh, Tracy uh, Lister is a bit of a, a Vietnam expert in the fact that uh, not only has she imbued herself in the culture, she's lived there um, yeah. for a long time at the Hanoi Cooking Centre mm-hmm. and Koto, yes. which of course uh, means no one teach one, mm-hmm. um, a great, um, what do we call that? Initiative, I think, is the yes. word, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, great idea to uh, to train at risk people mm-hmm. uh, and put them into give them a meaningful job mm. in hospitality. So uh, we're going to talk about how we as Australians are sort of curious travellers. Yes, and uh, how because we don't really have a food culture of our own, a lot of the times we sort of absorb other food cultures, and that's mm. sort of a, one of the things about being in Melbourne. I think is that we. We exist in this this world where we can dip into all these cultures that surround us, mm-hmm. um, filtered in through the great ingredients that we have growing on our doorstep. Yes, and in a way, that's sort of that's sort of Melbourne's food scene. But uh, we're going to have a little bit of a chat and just tease out what it means. Um, well, what is Vietnamese cuisine, and why is it different from the rest of Asia? And 
like the, the use of chili, for instance. Mm. It was very different. So you were saying just before the show, it's different to say the way the Thais use chili in their cuisine. Well, the Thais are just, you take the chili. Mm-hmm. With the Vietnamese, it's like, would you like to add chili? Yes. That's kind of nice. Yes. It is kind of nice. <laughs> um, have I got a food quote today? I think I do. Uh-huh. Um, yes. Yes, all right. Waverly Root. <laughs> That's got to be a Is that someone's clue. name? Yeah, yes. well, Waverly Root on food from 1980 says the turnip is a capricious vegetable which seems reluctant to show itself at its best. Mm. Discuss. <laughs> Turnips. Are we for them or against them? Are you for a turnip? Uh, I have never cooked a turnip at home, no. You've never cooked a turnip. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. What about your neeps and taties? Do you remember once about 20 years ago you bought me a kohlrabi and you said, Matt, your homework is to go home and ah! cook this kohlrabi? Did you cook it? I don't think I did. I don't think you did. No. You're still, you're still, you've got homework overdue. There is, because one thing you can do with a kohlrabi, it might work for turnip too, you can just um, uh, uh, cut them into little battens and then just dress them with a bit of um, acid and just eat them almost like chips. Sounds good to me. And uh, also, I think kohlrabi, they also do it up at Supernormal with um, Hiramasa kingfish. A mm. little bit of, um, little bit of, I think, Korean chili mm. and little um, discs of uh, kohlrabi on top. Mm. It's kind of nice. But uh, nips and teeties. Yes. They're great. <laughs> it's a great excuse to put lots of butter in there. Um, <laughs> you, you boil up um, pretty much... A turnip, you know, the the, um, the ugly one, the Swede, the, the yellow one. Mm. Um, the ugly turnip. The ugly turnip <laughs> from the hardback book of the same name. <laughs> um, and, and potatoes, and then you mash them up, and then you put loads and loads of butter in there and pepper, mm-hmm. and they go great if you're having a haggis. Mm. And a wee dram of whiskey. It's a good excuse to drink sure. and butter. Hey, look, a, a turnip is just a great gateway for excuses. <laughs> it is. It's a gateway vegetable. It's a gateway vegetable. To, to, to butter and whiskey. Yeah, yeah, that's it. We can, we can do this. Um, so anyway, that's the show that's coming up. Um, before we move on, um, Matt, we were talking um, about uh, honorary Mexicans. Yes. As we do. Yes. We've had uh, we've had these wonderful people on the show before, but Ger- Gerardo Lopez, Gerardo Lopez. Um, started La Totaria five years ago, mm-hmm. and this week or this month recently he has been announced that he's being awarded a Mexican government prize. What did he get? On the eve of Mexican Independence Day this weekend, one local Melbourne business owner is being officially acknowledged for the contribution he's made to the changing face of Mexican food in Australia. He's unique in the, being the only one, I think. I think so. I think he is. So, so Gerardo Lopez, uh, owner of La Torteria, as we mentioned, uh, will be awarded the Mexican Federal Government's Award for Outstanding Mexican Abroad. Did you notice there's no mention of excellence there? No, it's good. It's just outstanding. <laughs> yes. Uh, he'll be the first Mexican-Australian to receive the honour. Uh, the award honours Mexicans living abroad who have made a, a valuable contribution, contribution to sharing Mexican culture in well, their adopted countries. I think he has. I mean, he's done yes. a lot more for us than Taco Bill ever did. It's it's became, what, two or three years ago now, it became the measure of a good Mexican place as to whether they source good or do their own tortilla. Uh-huh. Uh, and you can buy La Tortilla tortillas at uh, good grocers around town as well. I was surprised. You know where a lot of time uh, uh, yummy croissants come from, uh, the mm. Vic Market yes. um, at the bakery. They've got them there. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm. Boom. Get the, then you can just wander in, grab some fish. Yes. <sighs> but good on you, uh, Gerardo, for a, a well-deserved award. Yes. Round of applause. Oh, what do you call that one? I don't know. I was just doing a back of Back of hand. hand. <laughs> back of hand. That's not even a golf clap. No disrespect, man. <laughs> no. It's just we're in a studio <laughs> and the, the microphones are sensitive. Uh, Twelve eleven here on three triple RFM. I think we might just get moving. Yep, and uh, we're going to get our first guests in. We're going to have a bit of a chat about uh, the Fringe Festival for twenty eighteen coming up, and a couple events you can go and see now. Ooh, S- the microphone seems yes. hot, doesn't it? <laughs> Ooh, that was just me touching. I, I'm not doing my pen anymore. Um, it is 12, well, I'm going to call it 12.14 here on 3 Triple RFM in the springtime as the uh, as the trees come into bloom. And uh, one of the things that that means is not only is there great food afoot and great uh, things to do, that the spring is happening, but 
Melbourne Fringe is happening, and we've got a couple of our exponents or performers uh, for Melbourne Fringe. Uh, Raylene, Corby Ray uh, is Bester. Uh, her secret identity, of course, is uh, Nigello. Very, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very, very much for coming in. And uh, Rochelle Fong putting on Coburg Carnival uh, subtitled. Nom, nom, nom. Nom, nom, nom. Nom, nom, nom. <laughs> Rochelle, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you for uh, for coming in. Now, um, let's see. First of all, um, Nigella. Yes. Do you, do you, are you able to just sort of throw yourself into Nigella? I can do that for you. Yeah, a little bit? I can do that, yes. All right. um, first of all, the inspiration. Why this character? Well, um, I mean, you're, you're quite welcome to just say why not. And well, you, we well, can well, just go, well yeah, she's, go. she's delicious. <laughs> yes. First of all. She is delicious. And uh, second of all, mm. um, I've had a few people say I look a little bit like Nigella Lawson. You do? So, um, hence where Nigella Love Bites came from. Yes. Yes. And um, a good place, a, a yummy place. A very delicious, yes. tasty mm. spot. Yes. Full of pleasure. Yes. And um, Especially late at night near the fridge. Late at night feasts. Mm. Mm. Delicious. Delicious. So, mm. so anyway, okay, so we were yes. going to get up. So um, <laughs> you're going to be doing this – is, uh, this isn't the first time that you've delved into this character. No. 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 That's right. That's it's, right. It's a return. It is. Yes, I've done it a couple of times um, in Perth – well, one time in Perth. Did we have you on before? No, I don't no, think the first so. Time. It's the first time being okay. here. Yep. Yes. Yes. yes time. So, yeah, so, and it's kind of travelled around a little bit and it's back in Melbourne probably for the last time for a while now, so three nights only and, um, yeah, it's pretty – it's in a rather intimate little setting. You're down in St Kilda. In St Kilda at the Alex Theatre. Yes. Um, in a very small, luscious little lounge, which is divine. You grab a glass of wine, you sit in there, cosy little couches. and. Will there be nibbling? Good. I mean nibbles. Well, you never know your luck. Yes, in the big smoke <laughs> down there in St Kilda. Yes. And um, all right, well, look, we might get into a, a little bit, maybe we'll tease out a little mm. bit about what's in, in the show. Uh, but, Rochelle, you're a, a, a different show in the north, set in the north. We've got the, a north-south divide happening here. Uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about your show and what you're going to be doing. Uh, so Nom 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 is an immersive theatre experience. Yes. Um, audience members rock up to their job trial for the uh, food delivery company Nom Nom Nom. Nom Nom Nom. Uh, they get given their little visor. They meet their team leader Trevor, who's a little bit too enthusiastic about good customer service. I can just imagine Trevor. Service. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We can <laughs> we imagine Trevor. Yeah. We've met Trevors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and they go for they go for a, a walk. So they make some end to end food delivery. They go pick up food from a local uh, restaurant in Coburg and then uh, proceed What's to... What's the restaurant they get it from? Uh, oh, I don't know if that Can't spoils it. Oh, okay. okay so, <laughs> so they go to an operating rest, a restaurant that's operating? Correct, yes. Okay, and then they bring their, their esky bags, no doubt. Yes. Get them filled up. That's right. And they go on a journey. They go on a journey. It's and a journey. Uh, yes, so they the People get changed? <laughs> Do they get? Oh, people get changed yeah. spiritually. Yeah, yes, spiritually. Yes. yes. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Well, they're wearing their visors. Yes, so they're sort that's of the role play change. Physically changed, but deep down within, there's some there's a change within that that happens. Yes. Yeah. So they yeah they rock up to a a, a real house. So they'll they'll go for a walk around Coburg uh, through the mean suburbs, the mean streets of Coburg, uh, mm. and oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and and I guess the the theatre show happens inside an actual house. So um, so how many uh, and it, yeah. so the, once they arrive to the one location, is there more than one location? It's just the one. Um, I feel like I'll be spoiling oh, it. Okay. So. <laughs> All right. So you you're going to be taken on quite the journey. I guess is the idea. So the idea is that people meet at a central point. Yes. And then they surrender themselves to you. To the job trial. Yeah. yeah, to the job trial. Oh, wow. And how many people can be involved in this job trial at one time? Uh, there'll be 12 per group. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah. That's sort of manageable, huh? Yeah, yeah, because group group food deliveries can get a bit messy. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Nom Nom Nom's had to cut down on 
on the number of people in each trial. Yes. <laughs> Practical reasons. Those OH&S came through. Those yeah. Human services. <laughs> they get into everything, don't they? H&S came through and said, look, this is too much. Um, what was how, – how were you inspired to do this? Um, well, I guess I, I, I've been through a few iterations of – chatting to Raylene about that and um, mm. I don't know how it got from here. It went from uh, will you turn your parents into pug guinea pigs into rice cooker helmet murder mystery and now I've... Turn it again. La- <laughs> <laughs> rice? The rice cooker head murder mystery. That's awesome. Thing. Oh, cool. I but like the way those time. words come together. You know, that's great. <laughs> yes? Um, and I guess I'm quite interested in, in immersive theatre and in site-specific theatre. So, yeah. um, yeah, I, I guess it just came out from just brain pooped that one out. Not sure how it happened, but we're doing it now. There it is. <laughs> well, we talk about the we use the Z word, the zeitgeist of delivery. It's sort of it's all around us and all pervasive, mm-hmm. and affecting a lot of society. So it's certainly a uh, contemporary and controversial issue that you're sort of uh, discussing there. Yeah, I'm. I'm interested in uh, social isolation and and you know us building our little ivory tower walls in in our homes and and what that means if we end up getting everything delivered. You know, it's you like can, someone feed me. Yeah, that's right. Wash my pony. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Hop on Tinder, like five minutes, you can have someone there. Like, what does this mean for humanity? You know. So, <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So Inter- interesting um, things being being seen. So, um, how much is this? It's free. <laughs> okay, just there's just this thunderous <laughs> pause. All these cars screech to a stop, and with people in right free. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm doing it uh, as part of Moreland City Council's Coburg Carnivale, which is a free event. Um, that's fantastic. Yes, that's great. Yeah. All right, so um, they can all, all, of course, go to Melbourne Fringe uh, website to have a look at that. Um, Ray, back to you. Um, the the idea of um, of doing Nigella, we sort of mm. uh, touched on it before, but um, yeah, wh- why Nigella? Well, you said you, you look like her, and yeah, and, and I just was really fascinated that um, every time you mention her name, both men and women go, "Oh, I love her." Like yeah. it's it's not one particular sex that likes her more than the other, um, and in some you know in some cases you'd think that might be the case because she comes across you know quite you know flirtatious I guess through the screen and Absolutely. you'd think that men you know women might be a little bit like oh gosh um, she's a bit threatening she's a bit threatening but yeah, no yeah, but both not. everyone adores her for different reasons and the fact I think the one thing that shines through is the fact that she's all about. Um, pleasure and making sure you indulge yourself in um, food mm. and enjoy it, and um, and so I kind of started looking into her and when I all the things that's happened in um, the last couple of years in her life has mm. been quite tumultuous through the media, and I kind of thought, who is this lady and how has she just risen above that and and is so well respected and put a career back on track after all of that, and I just thought she's such a resilient, strong. Um, Woman, I just thought I'm really inspired by her. So the show itself is a little bit of a homage um, to her, and it celebrates who she is. Um, and it's got songs in it. It's all um, you sing. Yes, it's a cabaret. So there's um, <laughs> lots of singing. Yes, um, and uh, all with uh, Australian composers who've um, written songs specifically for the piece. Um, How many songs? I think there's eight songs in wow. total in the piece as yes. well, yes. So um, all celebrating different foodie items um, and telling her story um, based on what I could gather from um, media reports and um, interviews that she's done over the years. Because the, the, the word seems to come through, uh, integrity. Mm. She, she's got a, a bucket load of integrity, isn't yes, she? she? Does. What she uh, exactly, what she has been through. Exactly. It's it's just a resilience that she's got, um, which just shines through through all of the things she's had to deal with. Um, and yet she still is enjoying life to its fullest. Um, and I think that's a wonderful message that you just need to focus on getting through. And, you know, every now and again life throws you a few lemons, but you need to make 
lemon tart. Oh, bang. <laughs> Thank you. That, that is very good. Well, look, it's uh, 12.24 here on 3 FM. We've been speaking about Melbourne Fringe Festival. You can, of course, go to the website. Just Google it. You know, we don't have to give you any addresses, right, Matt? No. No. Right. Um, and uh, what have we got? We've got Nigella Live Bites uh, put on by Raylene and, of course, Rochelle. Um, is putting on Coburg Carnival, nom, nom, nom. Uh, please look those up and um, support those, and uh, we wish you all the best for a very, very successful Fringe Festival. Thanks for coming in, you guys. Great. Thank you Thanks so much. Pleasure. 12.24, we are going to have a little bit of music. goes a little bit like this, and it'll keep going until it stops. And then we'll have an interview. So here I am. I'm in a lunchroom off Latrobe or Little Latrobe Street, um, and I'm speaking to Paul. You're going to have to tell me your last name again because I, I mangled it before. <laughs> Pep Jonovic. Pep Jonovic, uh, not Yugoslavian, from Montenegro originally. Um, and um, it's an interesting thing because. While this city seems to be relentlessly looking forward to uh, higher populations and uh, and infrastructure, especially in this case, tunnels under the ground to uh, to whisk us away and get us to where we're going, one of the things that does is it offers us a chance to look at where we've been. And this is where you come in, isn't it, Paul? Yes, yes. And I think what's important to note is not only does it allow us to see where we've come from um, as a society, but also at this scale, we don't often get the opportunity to look at archaeology at such a great, in such great proportions over two large sites in the city. Well, yeah, it's, it's spread out quite um, quite widely. Can you first of all tell us, what, what company are you that, that does this? We're Heritage Consultants, so I'm from Andrew Long and Associates. Yes. Yeah. And you're the guys that have been called in to, uh, to sift through um, <laughs> the dig. layers. And dig, and dig. It's all about um, not only sifting through all the deposits, but, you know, getting to those deposits and uh, providing the information to allow for the approvals, which is a large part of the process. So digging very carefully, layer upon layer upon layer. I heard the analogy was uh, sort of like going through the layers of a cake. That but was me. That was you. Hey, nice. <laughs> hey, nice work on that one. Um, but then also um, interpreting what do these things mean? First of all, where are the sites? What sites are we talking about? We're looking at a collection of old property parcels that are on the corner of Swanston and Latrobe Streets. Mm-hmm. So we know from historical documentations like plans and maps that there were several light industrial properties and commercial properties, so primarily along uh, the Swanston Street frontage where we had people coming in, you know, buying things, making a living by running their, their businesses. Um, so there's eight inventory sites, as they are known, to Heritage Victoria, um, but there are about... Uh, it's archaeologist um, jargon there. <laughs> yes, Maybe, I don't know, 10, 10 to 15 property parcels in total, looking at the maps now. Bloody hell, that's, yeah. that's a lot. And um, first of all, how do the sites sort of differ? Because I was thinking that the one on Swanston Street, which is near Flinders Street, is the gateway to the city. So it would have been a fairly important and expensive site in its time, and maybe the, the ones around Latrobe Street would be different. Uh, well, I'm just assuming things. So you t- tell me, well, tell me your interpretation of the difference in the two different sites. Well, I think um, the area near Flinders Street that was an active hub. Mm. People were congregating around Flinders Street Station. Um, our sites are a little further out, so you had to take a little while to get out here. Yeah. Um, not too far, but um, it was still along the main thoroughfare, so no, it's okay. still getting attention. Um, but I guess the still most still main street. Yeah, yeah um, the most important thing to note would be the function. So. You've got different sites down um, at CBD South, whereas here you've got that light industrial, um, commercial sort of atmosphere, um, similar to Little Long where you've had working class people working out there. Um, the, the notorious Little Longstale Street, come on. <laughs> the slum myth, you know, all of the that. The slums, We're the brothels, the <laughs> opium dens, the, well, the houses of ill repute, can we talk? We had working class families trying to make a living out there, so mm. it's not just about the 
disreputable behaviour, the brothels and all of that, you have families trying to make a living and that was something that I've been a part of before in in terms of interpreting um, assemblages from sites like that. And we're sort of similarly seeing that here where we've got people running businesses, making a living and also making Melbourne grow essentially. And I think it's exciting because we're looking at early settlement of Melbourne, which when you're looking at first settlement across the world, there's very little places and opportunities for that to be investigated. We have that here, and that's exciting. Wow. And also, um, there's sort of two early ages of Melbourne, is there not? There's sort of the pre-gold settlement, where it was just sort of growing slowly, slowly, and then... Bang! Marvellous Melbourne. Marvellous Melbourne. <laughs> like Have happening. we peaked yet? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, we haven't peaked no, yet. Yeah. <laughs> but are you seeing a difference between those eras? And have you gone down far enough to find the pre-gold stuff? See, it, we want to. We want to find that pre-gold rush era archaeology. But a lot of the, I guess, the structures and the associated um, archaeology, it's very ephemeral. It doesn't survive as well as your bluestone and your bricks. So we often find your load-bearing foundations for bluestone structures that come out mid-19th century. Um, prior to that, your timber structures don't survive as well. Um, so that's an issue there. It's there, but you don't often see it. And it's sometimes hinted by a couple of post holes here and there. Oh, yeah, right. But, uh, then, but then that's it, because the rest is all just rotted away. Pretty much, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and when development comes in, there's you know constant churning of deposits. There's always that risk of losing that uh, original sort of surface because of the new construction. And we see that with 20th century development, where bluestone structures are taken down. Sometimes they leave the, the foundations in because they're load-bearing, so they use that, but everything mm. else gets churned up. And unfortunately, we lose a lot of that information that we could have used to interpret the site further. Well, you, you might have lost a few things, but by goodness gracious, you've found a lot. I, I was mentioning the fact that I thought, hey, is it half a million? And you said, no, it's gone up to... 600,000 fragments so far. Yeah, my God. And it will potentially double, given the fact that we've only excavated four sites and there are another four to go. Wow. Okay, and um, out of those things that you've taken out, um, what, what sort of things have you found and uh, what do we interpret with them? Or is it too early to have the, the full interpretation happening? We have an idea. Uh, we were hoping to find um, materials and artefacts that relate to the occupation of each of these buildings We've got information about tenancies, so we know what was happening in terms of um, businesses and things like that. So we were expecting to find, uh, for instance, uh, materials associated with ironmongering. We had printers and leather makers, so we were hoping to find the materials that reflect those occupations. Mm-hmm. We found other things as well, um, which sort of don't contradict. Oh, we've got... Um, a wizard oil bottle, which was like a cure-all ailment, um, which was yeah. sold um, by this... Wizard oil. <laughs> nice. I like that. Kind of like castor oil. It cured everything. Yes. Um, it was promoted by this gentleman named Frank Weston. Um, he was in Melbourne between 1850 and 1860. Uh, he was a performer as well, so he'd provide shows, comedic acts and things like that. And I think he would sell that... Um, cure all after his shows, so we yes, had that here. fabulous elixir available in the in the concession stand. Uh, <laughs> yeah, probably, but not anymore. Yeah. Um, and I think he got charged for um, <laughs> for being a charlatan, having methylated spirits in it. But I think that was um, proved to be false. So there was some controversy around that. Did you find any of the bottles? A wizard or a bottle? Just, just one bottle. You've got one? We've got one. Yeah. Oh, awesome. And has it got a label on it or is it... It's embossed so you can see the text, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. What, what a great relic. And um, obviously the show is called Eat It. So is there anything that you can sort of tell us from, first of all, what people were drinking? We saw a whole bunch of bottles downstairs. <laughs> Lots of beer or wine. Lots of, okay, so... <laughs> Cognac. What, what, yes, go on. Um, the, the assortment of spirits. Um, there's plenty of gin bottles. Um... I personally haven't seen many champagne bottles, but I think there are lots of fragments yes. um, representative of those bottles. Um, oyster shells? O- lots of oyster shells. We had an oyster saloon fronting onto Swanson Street. There was yeah. a large uh, 
cache of oyster shell which sort of was found directly underlying deposits in the location of that saloon. So um, we, it, they weren't found in situ, but they were found in the general location. So it speaks to that occupation. But there's there's that. There's also materials. Can we just get back to the oysters? Um, that was a working class food, was it not? Oh, well, it's all relative, really. I think mm. a whole saloon could have been, um, you know, genteel in a way. Yeah, well, from, from what I heard is you could, yeah, you could get it at the upmarket places, but there were a whole bunch of oyster carts which used to go around the town and sell oysters from the bay because we used mm. to have an incredible amount of oysters, but sort of like the passenger pigeon and the dodo, we just destroyed them all until there were none left. <laughs> Um, what's really interesting about that, though, is uh, we had some basic analysis undertaken on the shell, and they seem to be from New South Wales. Oh, so, Sydney. Yeah, oh, so... Sydney rocks. Yeah, so we're, we're, it still requires further analysis, um, but that's something which is quite interesting. So we have a saloon with shells that aren't necessarily from just Melbourne. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And, and that sort of begs the question. It's like, how on earth do you get a, a, a Sydney rock off a rock? <laughs> And then get it down to Melbourne alive. I mean, wow, that's that's quite something, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, we still have to see if it is. Uh, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll work that one <laughs> it's out. Been um, okay, so we've got uh, cognac bottles, beer bottles, um, champagne fragments of bottles. Haven't found a lot of those. Um, any other sort of foodie sort of things that you've sort of unearthed? Yes, and catalogued seeds in cesspits. So we know what people were oh. eating because <laughs> second-hand seeds. Are we yes. talking? Yes. Yeah, we've got a lot of stone fruit <clears throat> seeds. Um, I shouldn't have been eating those stone fruit seeds. <laughs> God, and fig seeds. And fig so seeds is understandable because yeah. they're sort of kind of small. But okay, so imagine uh, the the work that needs to to go into actually find and catalogue these seeds. It's a complicated process. We have to use seed flotation and, yeah. What is seed flotation? Put soil in water and the seeds will float. So then we have to collect all the seeds out of the, the water. On oh, the surface. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And then, so, obviously there's people with um, great patience and fabulous eyesight. <laughs> and <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, that sort of seems to be the prerequisite for, uh, for doing this. How many people, and I want to get back to the food thing, if I may, but how many people have you got busily... What are they doing? How, how many people have you got working on, on this project? Up to about 50 at any one point. Wow. Um, reduces in number depending on how many sites we have active at any one time. Uh, but we have, you know, people working in artefact management, cleaning, sorting artefacts. We have cons- uh, conservators working in conservation, treating artefacts. We have people excavating. We have um, students, community members, and um, outreach program members. So it's very inclusive. We have a lot of people from different backgrounds. Mm. Um, but they've all got one thing in common is that they're very, very passionate about what we're doing and uh, they've got, yeah, great attention to detail. Yeah, <laughs> patience and, and the ability to sort of look back, which is um, which is, is what you're doing. So any other sort of foodie kind of things that you've, you've found other than the... Uh, so what do we have? Stone fruit seeds, um, the, uh, the fig Figs. seeds... Wizard oil, uh, which may contain traces of methylated spirits. <laughs> uh, was it coconut or uh, oh, that <laughs> coconut shell exotic. found? <laughs> that would have been exotic. Yeah. Uh, let me think. It wasn't too much more. It's it's hard because they don't preserve as well. So it, it all depends <laughs> on the, the condition, um, the preservation condition. So um, I know that there, next to where Young and Jackson's is now, uh, there was a, a dentist and some pretty gnarly teeth were uh, discovered. Tooth decay was kind of rife in those days. <laughs> and, and the guy just shoved them down the sink for by all accounts. Oh, look, I don't know about the context in which they were found, but mm. it's pretty nice and, and <laughs> I wouldn't say nice, interesting to find such a large amount of teeth. I wish we had... A few more than the two, I think, we found very early on. Yes. Um, but we can't really say that they had the greatest diet if they're drinking a lot of beer and wine, so that probably added to the fact there were lots of teeth down there. Yes, and probably not flossing between meals, too. We could probably say well, We teeth. have found fragments of toothbrushes, so they oh. were brushing their teeth. We just don't know how many of them were. Yeah, yeah, OK. Um, and um, so... Where does this go to now? I mean, the... Um, the sites, as you say, are going to be multiplying. There's more places you're going to be looking at. And how long is this 
endeavour going to be continuing for? We're about halfway through. It's been about four months, so we're expecting at least the same amount of time. Um, yeah, it's maybe early next year. Wow. Yeah. Oh, well, look, I think it's marvellous that you guys are doing it. And um, my compliments on, uh, on the patience and the dedication that you guys are bringing to uh, the task at hand. Yeah, well, I think uh, it's not only that. I think we're all very much eager to um, find something that's going to benefit Melbourne, um, mm-hmm. our culture, our history. Um, so it's not, a, not just about us being patient people and getting a job done. It's about really adding to um, our history and what we, I guess, uh, need to know about mm. our settlement and early development. Looking in the rear vision mirror... Of, uh, of, of Melbourne. How and when will Melburnians be able to see the, shall we say, the greatest hits of, uh, of the digs? The greatest hits, as in... Uh, well, hopefully not the ones that are smashed. The greatest intact pieces, maybe hits is probably not a good thing for someone, people that are used to brushing off little bits of dirt. Well, we're going to have uh, a few of the artefacts displayed at the Metro Tunnel HQ across the road from Town Hall, so you'll be able to right. see our hits, and it'll yeah. be a themed uh, sort of a, a theme event where I think maybe once a week or fortnight we haven't established exactly how often we'll change, but there'll be themes um, that will uh, allow us to provide. Uh, sort of exhibits for people to see wow. what we've been finding. And also on the Metro Tunnel website, there are um, links that you can go to to have a look at photographs and know more about the sites and just mm. the overall process. Look at some gnarly teeth. <laughs> Amongst other things. Uh, Paul, um, thank you very, very much for your time. And uh, for those that want to do more, what did you say the uh, the link was? Where do we go to? Uh, Metro Tunnel website. There you go. That's it. Just, yeah, just Google it. <laughs> <laughs> just come on. Get with it. Thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you so much. Wow, Sony are sponsoring us. Mm. Well, that's big. <laughs> that's big indeed. It is uh, 12.45. We've got uh, 15 minutes to go here on Eat It. On Sunday, broadcasting to you from beautiful downtown East Brunswick, and someone whose life and love has been Northern Hemisphere, specifically around the area of Vietnam, Tracy Lister. Welcome back to the microphones. Oh, Hillary's in here too. Come and sit down, Hillary. You can join us too. Hello, Tracy. How are you? Good. Just away. Um, you're in Melbourne. I am. Yeah, I it's am. sort of like, wow, Tracy's <laughs> in Melbourne. Yeah, um, spent time between Melbourne and Hanoi, but I've pretty much relocated back to Melbourne now and yes. still continue to go over to Hanoi a few times a year. I see, so you're able to indulge yourself in the the love of this, well, let's face it, sort of like your adopted country, well, is it not? Yeah, it's a big part of my life. I mean, I've been living there for over 13 years. I raised my daughter there, oh. um, lots of friends, Spent a lot of time researching the food, eating the food. So, yeah, it's always going to be a big part of my life. Vietnam's very different from north to south, isn't, yeah. it, isn't it? Like in, in climactic zones yeah. and, uh, and also politically too. Yeah, well, the north, Hanoi, which is where I lived, is pretty much the communist heartland of Vietnam and you can feel that when you go there. It's where the power flowed from, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Um, it's uh, it's a bit more reserved than mm. Saigon. Saigon's big and brash and very business focused. In your I th- face. Yeah, I think it's a little bit like Sydney, Melbourne. So I think it's kind of, you know, it's, it's probably Hanoi relates to my Melbourne personality. I think. Yeah, Hanoi. Saigon's the, more Sydney. The city of culture. Oh yes. The glorious yes. Prague of the <laughs> south, or in this way, in this case, uh, the north. How does the food change okay. uh, when you when you sort of go down um, this coastline? Yeah, it's, it is quite different. Um, food mm. in the north, uh, we actually have a winter cuisine in Hanoi. It's quite cold. If you've been to Hanoi in yeah. December or January, you might have got off the plane and been a bit surprised because yes. there's a winter like Melbourne. It's you know seven degrees and you're on the back of the motorbike and you're sitting at little <laughs> stalls having food. So it's quite cold. So the food reflects that. It's there's you know a hearty cuisine in the north. When you get into the centre around Hoi An, a little bit more Thai influence coming in because, you know, it's not so far from Thailand, so it's drawing on all those influences. So there's more lemongrass, there's more chilli in the diet. And that's where royal cuisine is too, isn't it? 
Royal Cuisine comes from Hui, which Hui. is in the centre. Yes. Yeah, so that's the old imperial city and that's where you get the little sort of single serves where the emperor duck liked to just have small portions and he only liked to eat the, the dish once a year. Yeah, don't, so don't, real don't pressure no repeats. No, absolutely yeah. not. Yes. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> so, uh, and then when you get down to Saigon, that's where you're going to pick up a lot more of the Khmer and, and Malay spices. So the chicken curry that you might have had in Melbourne, yes. um, that's that's from the south. And, of course, down south, it's tropical. Mm. So you've got all those beautiful tropical fruits coming into the diet. So it is quite quite different. And everybody knows pho, and, and pho is from the north, and that dish itself changes as it uh, as you move from north to south, how does it change? Just out of curiosity, um, in in the south it tends to be a little bit sweeter, and people okay. will put a, a bean paste in it in the south. In the north, it really is all about that beautiful, crisp, clear broth. It's like almost like the, the consomme, almost. Yeah, and do you never have the bits and pieces on the side? If you if you have fur here and you get the bean shoots and oh, where's that from? That's the north. That's crazy business. You would never put, go anywhere near a fur with a bean shoot in Hanoi. Really? Oh yeah, you get you get just weird like what, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, crazy. Why so in 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 Hanoi, if we order a, a bowl of fur, which I'm delighted to say that. A majority of Australians now can go. Yep. Okay. Yeah. yeah got mm-hmm. that. I can imagine that. Mm. Um, what would we? What would we get? And what would it look like? Well, you pretty much clear soup. You, you basically you've got to decide whether chicken or beef. Yeah, that's easy. the first thing you got to decide. Bowl or gar. Yeah, 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 that's right. And if you're doing a, a, the broth should be nice and clear. Yes. It shouldn't be dark. It mm-hmm. should be a beautiful clear broth. You have a taste of it. You see if it needs anything because you're always adjusting at the table. And um, you might want to put in a little bit of extra fish sauce. You might want to add a squeeze of lime juice and a bit of chilli. Um, in that, you'll have a little, if you've got the chicken, you've got a little bit of um, the chicken leg, a little bit of chicken breast, the noodles, you've got spring onion, you've got water mint, which is something we don't have here in Australia. It's part of the mint family. And you have a little bit of coriander. That's it. No basil, none of that other crazy stuff. That's your soup. Just keeping it simple but yep. uh, that to me um is one of the the beautiful things about it that one word you used adjustment mm. in that here we have this as you as we were saying off air and matt told us to stop because he said look don't don't <laughs> ruin this um but we were saying it's 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 a collective this this uh, this society uh with free market on sort of the, the the fringe of it but the fact is that you can get a dish and then you are free to add layers of flavour to it. That's right. Yeah. Well, I think street food um, is an example of it being a collective society. Like you might go into that venue on your own. Yep. But you sit down and you're not eating on your own. You're sharing with other people. Yep. And before you start, you will acknowledge who else is sitting around you. Oh, yeah. And you begin and you adjust it. And Vietnamese food is always adjusted at the table. Yeah. And the first thing I actually had to learn, because I did my apprenticeship in, in Melbourne, mm. and it was pretty much very European back in those days, and um, just, European cuisine. Let's just do, do where did you, is it, no, don't, <laughs> don't be frightened. <laughs> where, did, where did you do well, your apprenticeship? Well, Yeah, and where were you working? Oh, just up in Sydney. I was in Sydney for a while. Yeah. Uh, where else was I? It's going back a little while. Okay. Couple of King. Seasons. Do you remember Kazon King with Annie Smithers? Yeah, yeah. Annie Smithers. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, but um, looking towards um, Europe and uh, uh, let's face it, Asia was probably a little bit of a mystery to a lot of us, other than we'd sort of delved in with sushi yep. and things like that. But sorry, so um, you were used to that, and then you acknowledge people around yep. the table. And oh, sorry. Then yeah. And then you begin. So you just mm. you just to suit yourself and you begin eating. But the first thing I had to learn when I went to Vietnam was seasoning because I had gone through that season, everything season high before you cook. And with Vietnamese cuisine, you adjust at the table mm. and you really have to pull back your seasoning. And, uh, and that's where I started and that's where you, you then start working on that beautiful balance of flavours. Yeah, gotcha. And but th- that's the whole thing. That if you get a, a a bowl of something in a in a Thai restaurant, the chili's there already. Mm. Uh, but in in Vietnam, you can add the chili, as you yeah. say, add a little bit of um, acid to it. Usually, some bits bit of, of lime. lime. Yep. 
is is kind of good. And yeah. It's, it's well, it's always yeah. You sit down and you you um, taste it. And then you personalise it. And even if, you know, that's the fur, but if you're having, um, you know, grilled chicken or something like that, there will be a particular dipping sauce that you will have with that dish. And if you're having a congee mm. or a chow, then you would be adjusting that with perhaps some fish sauce or various herbs. The other thing I love about uh, Vietnamese cuisine is... Um Oh, God, what's that old proverb about uh, the Vietnam? If it was like a house built on very, very strong foundations, but the windows are left open so that the air can blow in, and especially the air that blew in with the, the French who uh, uh, who colonised Vietnam for, for so long mm-hmm. until they were kicked out, I think, in Yen Bien Phu in the yep. 50s. Yep. But the Vietnamese guy, there's so many influences that have been so gloriously taken and and evolved into their cuisine isn't it it has but the vietnamese make it their own exactly like they'll they love coffee which is one of the reasons i can live in vietnam is because they are as addicted to coffee as we are in melbourne thank god they Um, dig the cafe yeah so vietnamese coffee with condensed milk or with yogurt in summer yogurt so you have that tart yogurt chocolatey bitter coffee and some condensed milk, and in winter you have it with egg. With so egg. with egg. So think zablioni. Yeah. So you have hot, strong coffee, and floating on top of that is a zablioni. So the, the Vietnamese are great. Yep, we love coffee. We'll take that, but we're going to make it our own. Yep, mm. we love pate. Pate. Yep, but we're going to put some coriander and chili with it. Yeah. And we're, they're fantastic. We love a French stick, but we're going to change yeah. that a little bit too. We're going to make the crust lighter and we're going to have a very low gluten um, flour or some rice flour in that and totally change it. But then there's been other influences in Vietnamese cuisine. I mean, obviously China was there for about a thousand With the choppies? Years, yeah. Boarding chopsticks, cultivation of rice, yes. the concept of five flavours, which is the, the basis of a lot of um, Southeast Asian cuisines. So that came from China. There's what ja- are the five flavours? Sweet, salty, spicy, sour and bitter. Yes. So Vietnamese cuisine needs that very nice balance. Sometimes it might be one or two of those flavours that are more at the front, mm-hmm. but the other three might be there somewhere. So bitter might be a leaf, so a lot of bitter herbs. Yep. Um, sweet, normally cane sugar, yep. or it can be ripe fruits. Sour, tamarind, limes, Lime. vinegars, yeah. chilli, obviously, peppers for the, for the heat, for the spicy, and... What did I miss out on? Well, the, the Japanese notion, which came a little bit later, isn't in there, I noticed, the, the whole thing of the umami, yeah. the, the glutamates. Yeah. Oh, look, the flavour... It's there. ...is there, yeah. It's not discussed, I suppose, in the same way that it is in, in Japanese cuisine. And you're going to be taking some people across here. We should talk about the, the trip that you are going to be doing. What's the thing you look forward to the most... And showing people, I suppose, because this is sort of like taking people through your house, really. Yeah, it's like, yeah. hey, look over yeah. here. So basically, it's um, the best of my, my 13 years in Vietnam, and this is wow. this is what I love about it. Um, we go to the wholesale market in Hanoi, Long Bien, which is under the French-built Long Bien Bridge. <laughs> we do a pre-dawn tour there, uh, and Chef Swen, one of uh, my dear friends in Hanoi, takes us through. And it's she's she shops there. She knows the vendors. She knows the produce. She knows mm-hmm. where we can stand. She knows when we have to move on. All that sort of stuff. I mean, it's a busy working wholesale market. Yep. So we're there before dawn. The sun's coming up. You've got the trains going over Longbrin mm-hmm. Bridge. Um, you've got all the produce coming in from the countryside. That's a highlight. Another highlight is we. Um, in Hue, you're talking about the Royal Cuisine, um, we actually visit a monastery run by nuns and have a vegetarian lunch with the nuns. I think I've been to that one. You might have. Matt, have you been to that one? I haven't been to Hue at all, no. Yeah? No. Yeah. So very simple food. You know, they make their own tofu and, and um, produce from the garden, but it's just a, a wonderful experience. It sure is. So, and, uh, and then uh, to Ho Chi Minh? I don't go to Ho Chi Minh. No, you don't go to Ho Chi Minh because you're a good Melbourneian and dealing with the Hanoians and I that's just would rather stopped. spend more time in the north and the centre and, and, and Hui and Hoi An. Yes. Um, and I certainly give people lots of tips and recommendations of what to do in Saigon. 
or HMNCD. Yes, um, if, if you it's, really must go there, if you must you, go you, there, right. look, it's great. It's easy to get around in yeah. Saigon. It's a big, bustling um, city, and um, you know. I'll certainly direct people in how to do that. Gotcha. How long does this uh, trip last for? 12 days. 12 days? Yeah. How much? Quanto, quanto? Quanto. Uh, it's about 3,900, but you don't have to put your hand in your pocket again once you're there, except if you want to, you know, indulge in beer hoys, which is going to set you back <laughs> about 50 cents a beer. Yeah, exactly. Um, how do we find out about this? You can go to my website. Tracy Lister? Yep, tracylister.com. Got that, man? Check. 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 We'll put it on the Twitter website. It right? Well, that sounds like a, a glorious thing. Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, look out, there are, there are books that have been published by Tracy Lister. Uh, in the couple minutes we got left to, uh, to go, favourite places to um, go and in, uh, here? Have you been to Jerry Meyer's new place, Anan? Would probably I be the, love in a little Anan, Street. yep. I love Anan. I go there quite regularly. I was there this week. Um, I love uh, Hanoi Me down in Port Melbourne mm-hmm. and Dandelion, which, of course, is, is great. Jeff Lindsay's place, yeah. And down at Barwon Heads. Barwon uh, Heads? Yeah, yeah, it's worth the drive. Okay, here we go. Barwon Heads, Hanoi Kitchen. Hanoi Kitchen. It's a, actually a, a lovely uh, chef from Hanoi yeah. who, uh, who's got the restaurant down there, and she's doing some beautiful northern food. Really? Yeah. Darwin heads. Who would have thought? And Matt's writing furiously. And I'll just tell you quickly, because I heard you mention Koto earlier. Yeah, yes. We've got some Koto alumni in Melbourne at the moment, and they're working at uh, Anam. They're working yes. at Dandelion, and they're working uh, at Rice Kitchen. That's awesome. Go and support them and say hi. Well, that sounds like a great thing. And, of course, so those that have come in late to the show, Koto is no one, teach one, a great uh, initiative that uh, – how long has it been going for in the 10 since we got Started in 2000. 2000. Mm-hmm. And it's teaching uh, uh, at-risk sort of people and giving them a go in hospitality. That's right. Tracy, thank you for coming in. Good luck with the tour. Lovely to see you. Matt, we need to go because what's happening now? Uh, Neil's up next. We're oh, still Neil's here. Back. We <laughs> thought you were going to do it from the other studio, Neil, but you're, you're back and you're keeping us on our feet. You are. Um, hey, also, we should just very quickly mention that subscriptions for this year's Radiothon are due week after next. So 5pm Wednesday, the 26th of September, you've got to pay up by then if you want to be in the running for the prizes. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you for coming in and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.